invite you tonight to open your Bible to the little book of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 1. I just uh, decided to do a, a short sermon series on Jonah. Uh, the occasion, uh, Mike Scout was, is uh, going to be preaching on this, and I wanted to uh, just sort of study it as well, and, and we were talking about it, and I realized I've never preached on the book of Jonah. And um, so it's a fantastic little book uh, that is, uh, I think, very appropriate for, uh, for where we are. And I'm excited to, uh, to start this short series on the book of Jonah. So Jonah, uh, give you a little bit of time to find it since it's a small little book and um, it could be buried in your Bible. But uh, Jonah chapter 1, we're going to read the first six verses and we'll be looking at the first four. Give our attention to God's word. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, thank you for uh, this word for your church. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have good things to teach us tonight and give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message tonight is, But Jonah. Uh, Rick Phillips begins his commentary on uh, the book of Jonah with this sentence, it is one thing to know the doctrines of grace and quite another to know the grace of the doctrines. I think that's an excellent summary of the lesson of the book of Jonah. It's one thing to know the doctrines of grace and quite another to know the grace of the doctrines. It's, it's uh, possible to give intellectual assent to uh, what we call the doctrine of God's grace, uh, and it's a, but it's a different thing to have a transformative experience of God's grace. Uh, the book of Jonah is a story of a man who would say he believed in God's grace, uh, but who clearly has not been transformed by that grace. And the evidence is simple. Jonah does not share God's heart for a lost and wicked world. I said, well, uh, Mike and I have been uh, talking about this text together, and um, I'm just going to quote him, actually, from um, a draft of his sermon. I think it's very good. He says, the book of Jonah is the story of a man whose concept of grace was so truncated, nearsighted, and perverted that it neither delighted his soul nor propelled him to mission, but left him self-absorbed, proud, judgmental, and deeply disobedient. Uh, That's exactly the case. Uh, The book of Jonah is written to show that God and Israel are at missional cross-purposes. They are not on the same page. 
Jonah, you see, does not just uh, stand for himself. He stands for the nation as a whole. Uh, God's people had come to believe that God's grace was exclusively for them. It was about them. It was due them because of their Abrahamic ancestry. It was meant for their blessing, their comfort, their peace. And that's it. Uh, And yet in this book, God shatters those preconceptions, those false notions of what His grace is and what it's it's for. He shows them uh, that His grace is not due to uh, Israel because of their ethnic origin. It is not for Israel simply for their comfort and peace. It is for His glory and it is a free gift that He gives to wicked people. That's the shocking reality of God's grace, that his saving purposes extend to the vilest of vile sinners, and that the evidence then of people who understand grace and have experienced that grace is that that they will be a people eager to share that grace with a lost and wicked world. Mike again says this, if Jonah tells the tale of an ungracious Hebrew prophet who cares only about himself and his own people, it also shows the astonishing graciousness of the God whose heart beats with an evangelistic rhythm, the God who loves saving lost, undeserving, and ungodly sinners like the Ninevites and like Jonah and like you and like me. The historical context, just quickly to set the stage, Jonah is, uh, we don't know exactly when it's written or when it takes place, approximately 750 years before Christ. So if you're thinking somewhere in the time of Isaiah, um, about 200 years after King Solomon, uh, the kingdom has been divided for a long time. And, and so you have two nations now, the, the nation of Israel to the north, the nation of Judah to the south, and Jonah is a prophet of God sent to Israel. Uh, Israel is slowly but very surely apostatizing, moving away from, step by step, from the, uh, from the God of the covenant. Uh, they're being led into apostasy by wicked kings. There are many, many worshipers of Baal in Israel. They, um, in a short period of time, in 722, they will be conquered by Assyria, scattered around the then known world, and disappear as a nation, uh, as a people belonging to God. Israel is soon to just disappear. And so judgment is coming. But, but before judgment comes, God speaks a word of grace. He gives them a, 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 a sign again of the nature of his grace and his saving purposes. And he does it through Jonah. We'll first look at the command that God gives, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, we don't know much about Jonah, but what we do know about him is significant. We know that he is a prophet. Someone who's been specifically commissioned by God to be a spokesperson for God, to do what God tells him to do. It's very possible that Jonah has been trained under Elisha. Um, Elisha had a school of prophets, men who, who gathered, and uh, Jonah, Jonah very likely has seen uh, Elisha's ministry firsthand. We also know that he's a man who had seen mercy. He's experienced God's grace to Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 14, 
we have the story of wicked King Jeroboam who did all the evil that all the wicked kings of Israel did before him. But the, um, the Assyrians were pressing hard and were really persecuting the people of Israel. And so uh, through Jonah, God gave a message that he would be gracious. And the Lord restored, we read, the border of Israel as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So here you have a wicked king. You have a wicked people, and they're doing wicked things, but they're God's people. And God, through the mouth of Jonah, speaks a message of grace that God had heard the cry and that God, would, uh, God helped them because there was no one else to help. Jonah has seen grace. God's command is very clear. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's a direct command in the imperative mood. Uh, God's not suggesting, he's not offering up this as something Jonah might want to consider. Uh, he tells Jonah to go, clearly expects Jonah to obey. It's what prophets are supposed to do. It's sort of the job description. God says, uh, say this to my people, and then the prophet is, uh, is supposed to take that word and speak it directly, clearly, precisely to God's people. Uh, God, I've been reading through Isaiah for, for devotions, and um, in Isaiah chapter 20, God tells Isaiah to remove his clothes and to walk about for three years naked. And Isaiah did. It's not an option if you're a prophet. What God says, you do. God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Now this is, um, if you were shocked by the uh, God's telling Isaiah to go naked, uh, this command would be just as shocking to the Israelites. Just as shocking to Jonah. <clears throat> prophets, you see, were mouth, God's mouthpiece to God's people. They had a message for God's people. And while they would at times pronounce judgments on other nations, they would do so from the safety of Israel, their homeland. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. This is not an easy journey. It would be 600 miles of walking, maybe riding, but probably primarily walking through desert, 600 miles through enemy territory. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, it looks like a suicide mission. You're going to go and you're going to preach as a Israelite a highly offensive message to people who kill Israelites for fun. And that's not overstating it. Nineveh was, as I said, Israel's greatest enemy. It was a place of unbounded evil, debauchery, and violence. They delighted in torture and depravity. Tim Keller uh, writes, after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, 
leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he's dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled, well, I'll just, you get the gist of it. It's grotesque. Assyrian history, Keller says, is as gory a history as we know. They're just vicious, wicked, despicable people. Barbaric in every sense of the word. And no wonder then God says in in 2b that their evil has come up before me, literally, the Hebrew says, uh, in my face. Their evil is an offense to God. And he has taken notice. And now he's going to send his prophet to rebuke them. So how does Jonah respond? Well, um, here's one possible response, maybe the expected response. It'd be nice if we read in verse 3, then Jonah prayed and said, Oh, Lord, uh, I am your servant, and you are the God of heaven and earth. And I'm a little nervous about this, but you protected Moses when you sent him to speak to wicked Pharaoh, and I'm confident you will protect me as well. Help me to preach with power and and boldness and and give fruit to your word and, and, and bring them to repentance. That would be a wonderful prayer here. And then it would be great to read, and then Jonah packed and began the journey. Uh, Boys and girls, is that what he did? That's not what he did. Verse 3, but Jonah, that's not a good start. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Um, Jonah, the prophet of God, whose job description is to do and say exactly what God commands, did exactly the opposite of what God commanded. God says, arise and go up. Jonah got, and he went down, down to Joppa, to a port. Uh, God says, go northeast to Nineveh, and he headed southwest and then straight west for Tarshish. And he's not just heading west. Uh, he's, uh, he's headed for the ends of the world as it was then known. Uh, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is, but, but uh, the consensus is that it is on the western side of Spain. It's as far as you can go to get away, right, from the presence of the Lord. And that's what he's doing. So he's, he's got to go the entire length of the Mediterranean by sail. It could take possibly a year. He... he He's not just um, trying to hide for a little while. Jonah is, is as gone as gone can be. He, you cannot have a more radical, dramatic response of disobedience. And notice, he's not just shirking his duty, he's running from God. The text tells us twice that he's running from the presence of the Lord. He's not just abandoning his post. He's abandoning or renouncing God. And he's apparently under the uh, common but mistaken idea that you can, you, can, um, you can leave your God behind. The common understanding is that gods are tribal deities. They belong to nations. And if you move from nation to nation, you're sort of moving from the jurisdiction of one God to another God. Uh, or uh, maybe you don't believe in the God, the nation you're going to, but you know that your God got left behind in, in your home country. So you're, you're unprotected. J- Jonah seems to think that um, God is a big God, but, but if he goes to Tarshish, uh, he'll be able to escape. 
And so he heads down to Joppa and catches a ship, uh, maybe surprised uh, to find that uh, a boat was ready to go. They don't publish their departure times on the internet, but, but there it is. It seems, um, what good fortune, right? Uh, a, a ship is ready to sail. William Banks says, when a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides transportation facilities. Uh, If you're ready to sin, the devil is ready to help. Well, Jonah was ready to deny his God. And the devil has a ship ready to go, and and so off they go. The devil and Jonah in the deep blue sea, just headed straight west. And he must have sighed with some relief as they cleared the harbor. He's free. He got away with it. He, um, he, He left. No one can stop him now. But it raises this question. Every, every Israelite would be asking, everyone who reads the book, what, what in the world? Why did Jonah run? Why such a dramatic, drastic, radical response? Commentators offer different suggestions, but fortunately we're not, we don't have to guess because we're told in the book of Jonah by Jonah himself why he ran. If you go to chapter 4, just turn in your Bible to chapter 4. In chapter 3, we're going to have the story of uh, the Ninevites hearing the word of the Lord and repenting, and then God relenting, showing grace to them. And in chapter 4, we read this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why he ran. What bothered him so much? What bothered him so much is this this sense that God was a God of grace and that God was willing to be gracious even to the hated Ninevites. Now, now, why would Jonah be so offended by that? He's exceedingly angry when it happens. And you can trust that he was, he was angry when he got the command. Well, there's several motives here. One would be nationalism. Jo- Jonah is an Israelite. And any gracious disposition on the part of God towards Israelites' enemies would feel like a betrayal. God is Israel's God, and he should not be showing mercy to Israel's sworn enemy. Nineveh was the epitome of evil. They had killed good Israeli men and had raped their wives and daughters. They were a vicious, degenerate, barbaric nation, and in some sense, it feels immoral for a moral man a moral Jew, for God to show grace to despicable, violent haters of God like the Ninevites, it it feels like a violation of justice. And so James Boyce said, Jonah, quote, would be damned literally before he would see God's blessing shed on these enemies. That's That's what drives him. That's why Tarshish. I mean, Tarshish is so far away, he's probably never coming home. 
But he simply is not going to participate in this, in this horrific betrayal by God and, 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 uh, and immoral act. It reminds me of Ahithophel. If you remember the story, it's in, I think, 2 Corinthians, uh, no, uh, sorry, 2 Kings 14. And Ahithophel, da- Absalom has rebelled. David's on the run. Ahithophel was David's best counselor, but he stayed behind to help Absalom. And, um, and so Absalom is getting counsel from Ahithophel, and Ahithophel gives him great counsel. If you wanna, if you wanna finish this thing off, Go run after David and, and get him now. But, but the Spirit of God came in, and, um, and the king, uh, uh, Absalom says, well, let's, get some, let's just get another perspective on this. And so another man came and said, listen, he's like a wounded bear. Don't do anything right now. And um, Ahithophel, hearing that his counsel was rejected, went home, arranged his affairs, and hanged himself. Now, that seems a little dramatic. Uh, just because the king didn't listen, or Absalom didn't listen to what you said. But if you know the whole story, Absal- uh, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel has seen the evil of David. Ahithophel, by staying with Absalom, clearly shows that he believes David has this coming. That this is justice. But, Ab- but Ahithophel, being a wise man, also understands that when his counsel is rejected, he senses God is at work. God is going to show grace to that rascal David. And Ahithophel is not going to live in a world where God shows grace to such despicable men. Count him out. I think Judah was driven by a lot of the same sense. Judas, the one who betrayed Christ. This is where Jonah's at. He'll be damned if he's going to sit and watch God uh, destroy, just sin against his people and do this immoral act and show kindness to these wicked, vile people. Now, you might think, wow, that's really something, but have you ever been really wounded by someone? I mean, really, really deeply hurt? Someone slandered you and it cost you? They lied about you and and you paid for it? Maybe a, a spouse who was routinely abusive and unfaithful? Maybe the person who broke into your home stole from you? Wounded you in some way? Is it easy to want God to show grace to them? You think about Christians, we talked about it this morning, being persecuted all over the world. Imagine being a Christian in Nigeria and Boko Haram attacked your village, abducted your daughters, killed your sons. Would you want God to show grace to them? Would you want God to forgive them? not make them pay? This isn't that hard to understand. And that's where Jonah is. How could God even consider, even consider showing grace to wicked, wicked Nineveh, the enemy of Israel? He will have nothing to do with it, and so he runs. And he's quite confident, right? If you imagine Jonah on the ship headed west... No one knows where he is. No one knows where he's going. No cell coverage. He's gotten away with it. But the Lord. In verse 3 we read, but Jonah. Here we read that God will have the last word. But the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The word hurled is the word you'd use for throwing a javelin. 
Uh, the images of God in his, in his heaven, um, in all of his greatness and glory, taking aim at Jonah's ship and hurling a storm with infinite skill, and it didn't miss. And Jonah's ship, the ship that he's on, is suddenly caught up in this tremendous storm. The, the, the wind and waves obeying the voice of their master. And it was so great, the ship was, the, the, the sailors, experienced men, were confident they were going down. We're going to look at that story, uh, Lord willing, next week. Tonight, I just want us to see the gracious, constraining hand of God. I'm so thankful for verse 4. I'm thankful because, you see, my life is full of but dales, right? Where, where God will say in his word, uh, Dale, do this, and then you could say, Dale arose and did the opposite, or Dale arose and ignored the command, and I don't think I'm alone. I'm confident I'm not alone. How many times hasn't God told you what to do and what not to do? And it wasn't hard to understand. It was pretty much in black and white. It was clear. And you flat out ignored it. And what if the story ended there? See, what if verse 3 was the end of the story and, and Jonah sailed off to die in a faraway land forever outside the presence of God? What if, what if that was the story of your life and, and my life? Because it could be. You see, God could just say, okay, I, I, I told you what the command is. You refused the command, but that's fine. Go. Live your life. Run to Tarshish. Have it your way. Delight in your, in your sin. Exercise your will. Do what you want to do. Have at it. But you will never, ever see my face. It would have been perfectly just for God, friends, to do exactly that. He does not owe us to come and find us. But in love, that's what he does. That's why I love verse 4. But the Lord, you see... The Lord, in his grace, would not allow Jonah to destroy his soul that way. But the Lord is the story of the gospel. Uh, Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to walk when you were following the prince of the power of the air. We were all like that, following the devil, satisfying our sinful desires. Stuck in sin and dead and delighting in it. We were by nature children of wrath. That's what Paul says. Objects of God's, uh, of God's wrath. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and stinking dead in our sins made us alive together with Christ, whom he put to death in our place. By grace, you've been saved. But God changes everything. It's the gospel. If there was no but God in your story, you see, you would be simply, truly, forever destined for hell. You see, and there's no reason for that but God. There's nothing in the text that will, that will point to anything in you or in me that would, that would make the but God reasonable, expected. 
It just points to God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us for no reason at all, except he determined to. You see, and that's the astounding grace that saved us. That's the astounding grace that is the point of the book. And it is precisely, you see, as God going to Nineveh, to, he's going to Nineveh precisely to show Israel the nature of grace. This is who grace is for, and Israel has forgotten. Hugh Martin points out that Israel's spiritual decline was rooted in their loss of wonder of the grace of God. Vibrant faith was replaced with formalism, going through the motions, doing the deeds. Legalism replaced love. Pride replaced piety. They prided themselves on being God's people, and yet they did not share God's heart for the lost or his passion for his glory. They had been called in Abraham to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, but their religious pride made them a stench to the nations. They were despised by the Gentiles, and Jesus reminded them, told them, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. They weren't a light, they were a sewer because of their pride, because they completely forgot the grace of God. Friends, this, this, this happens in churches. It happens to Christians. It's happened to you before. It's happened to me. And the evidence is when we're no longer amazed by God's grace and we allow ourselves to grumble and complain, we're no longer willing or eager to see his grace shown to others. Rick Phillips says, if we gaze upon the wicked world around us and see mainly a threat to our Christian lifestyle instead of perishing sinners in need of the gospel, and if we pray for forgiveness for our sins but ask for justice for the agents of wicked culture, then it cannot be doubted that the spirit of Jonah is in us. How do you view the world? When you watch the news, when you see the wickedness, is your heart broken or self-righteous indignation? You see, God is not just seeking to save Nineveh. He's seeking to rescue Israel. And through this old book, he's seeking to help and rescue us. The Ninevites were blinded to the glory of God by their unbelief and sheer paganism. The Israelites were blinded to the glory of God by their religious self-righteousness and their covenant pride. Both were blind. Both were equally deserving of divine condemnation. Both were equally in need of divine grace. And the one who repented received it. The Ninevites. The Ninevites. Think of the Pharisee and the publican. The one who repented received the grace. And so Jonah's going to be a call for us to examine our hearts, our pride, do we share the heart of God? Do we understand the heart of God? Is the grace of God amazing to us? Do we recognize how unreasonable and, and in one sense unjust it is that, that God would forgive you? And that the, 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 the tension of justice can only be resolved at a, at a cross where an innocent Savior died in your place bearing your sin. I pray that we would, through this study, uh, just grow more um, in tune with the heart of God and, and, and grasp God's concern for lost people all around us. Lost people made in the image of God. 
We're going to find God say, should I not care about these people who don't know their right hand from their left? Should we not care as well? Let's pray that God uses these messages in this book, his message, to, to mold us into the likeness of God, to humble us, to make us amazed again at the grace that saved us and confident it can save our community. It can save every sinner who calls on the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your amazing grace that saved wretches like us. Forgive us, Lord, for taking it for granted. Oh, I thank you, Lord, that when we rebelled, when we went our own way, you did not let us go, but you intervened over and over again. You've rescued us. Lord, I confess that so often we're tempted to grumble and complain and so easily forget about what burdens your heart, what concerns you. We so easily, Lord, do not see unsaved people all around us. So we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and give us a fresh understanding of, of grace and a clear vision of, of your desire that your church be a light in a dark world. And that we shine that light and that you, Lord, glorify your name as you gather in your elect and as you transform us, wicked sinners, all of us, and make us like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's respond by delighting in the grace of the Lord together. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, number 465.
may that grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, abide with you, and go with you until, until we see our Savior face to face. Amen.